Okay, Verizon tells me it's a little bit past 9.30. So go ahead and uh, I hate to stop the conversation. I did, thank you for that. Can you hear me at the back table? I need to turn the, turn the system up. Everybody can hear me? Good, good. I never know what my volume is or what I sound like. As long as you can hear me. So, 2 Timothy. Um, we're going to wrap up chapter 1 of 2 Timothy today. Uh, so we'll really just be looking at verses 15 through 18. I'm, I'm very fond of passages like this because this is one of those passages that if you, for some people, when they're reading something like Paul and they're looking you know, for that serious, deep theology, they, they consider a passage like this as just some interesting biographical information. Uh, but usually if we'll dig into some of that interesting biographical information that Paul gives us, um, we, we find some really good lessons uh, for the Christian walk. So yeah, we'll wrap up uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, two pieces of housekeeping, because when I get in the text, I'll, I'll, I'll forget. Uh, two pieces of housekeeping. Uh, always remember, if you do miss a Wednesday, you can go to our website, and these things are podcasted. There's a voice, there, there's an there's a, there's a eye in the sky recording my voice most of the time. So, uh, yeah, you can always go to our website, and I think it's fairly clear how to, how to access podcasts, how to subscribe to one of the podcast uh, providers. The other piece of information is uh, I've got to be somewhere next Wednesday morning, so um, Ken Lyon is going to take you into the first chapter of uh, or chapter two of Second Timothy. Some of you know Ken Lyon. Some of you perhaps don't. Uh, Ken is one of the pastors here with us at Wesley Memorial. Years ago, he was a pastor at First Methodist here in High Point, and then he left First Methodist and went away to Matthews. And I think he spent about 17 or 18 years in Matthews, grew one of the greatest churches in our annual conference. And when he retired and he and Lydia came back to High Point, for which I was very grateful, uh, he, he came among us. He, he strongly supports uh, what we're doing, what's, what's happening here at Wesley Memorial. So he has been a a great, great gift to us. And I want you to get to know Ken. I know some of you know Ken because of his high point roots, but um, I want all of you to get to know Ken. There may be, there may be some times you, you could benefit from your relationship with Ken. So next week we'll be plowing. You'll be plowing into chapter 2 of Second Timothy. So there's my commercials. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. Let me read through this short passage. And then we'll go back and dig deeper in it. Paul says, again to Timothy, You are aware that all, all, who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Ernesphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me 
May the Lord grant him mercy from the Lord on that day. And you will know, he says to Timothy, you will know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So I find this to be a very interesting text. And again, some people would read this and just fly on by it, you know, and, and would put this right up there next to genealogies as far as interest in the Bible. But there's some wonderful, wonderful information here. Um, again, in case you're new among us, Paul is in prison. He's in prison in Rome. I think it's not the imprisonment that you see at the end of the book of Acts, because that was a very moderate, uh, congenial imprisonment at the end of the book of Acts. So I hold with the traditional church that Paul had to get released from that imprisonment. And he made a fourth missionary journey. And that's how we fit First, Second Timothy and Titus into Paul's chronology. And then he gets arrested again in Rome. Uh, the tradition of the church, he was arrested during the reign of Nero. He was arrested uh, soon after the fire that burned Rome around the year 6040, 64, around the year 64. So you're talking 30-some years after Jesus. Uh, there was a fire that burned Rome. Some of you may remember the old, old movie, Quo Vadis. Great movie, by the way. Uh, came from the 50s when the Hollywood is making all those biblical movies. Uh, in Quo Vadis, you see Peter Ustinov being, um, pretty sure it's Peter Ustinov, being um, Emperor Nero, and he is um, fiddling or playing the lyre or something while Rome is burning. Now, the problem was when Emperor Nero, who was, who was crazy, when Emperor Nero burned a big chunk of Rome, because he had plans. You know, he, things that eventually get built there, like the Colosseum that postdates Paul, things would get built there in Rome as a result of the, of the Great Fire. But um, as you can imagine, a lot of the people who were burnt out of their homes because of Nero's lunacy did not respond well to that. So um, Nero had to, uh, you'd think he had figured that one out in, in advance, but Nero then had to... Um, Blame somebody for the fire. So he blamed, and we know this from Roman authors in Quo Vadis, he blamed that early Christian community there in Rome because of their superstition, because of their strange behavior, because of their strange beliefs, because they wouldn't worship the gods that protected Rome, all that stuff. They blamed, he blamed uh, the Christian community, and I Sure, there were a few people in town who probably believed, believed Nero. He had to have his supporters, I guess. But it was during that persecution that both Peter and Paul die in, in, in Rome. Um, that's the tradition, and it fits into what we know from Bible. So I usually go with it. If tradition and Bible agree, I usually go with that. So um, we, we know what's going on in Rome. One of the things, by the way, we know this from Roman historians, Nero is so crazy after he um, blamed the Christians, small group of Christians, used them as a scapegoat uh, for the fire that devastated much of Rome in 64. Uh, one of the things we know he did from his own historians is that uh, he, he crucified Christians 
because they had burnt the city of Rome, which was a complete lie. He, he crucified Christians. He tarred them when he put them on the cross, and they would light those crucified Christians to illuminate their games at night. Uh, throughout history, we've always been very creative when it comes to torture and killing our enemies. Uh, but, of course, Nero chose the crucifixion thing because, you know, we were worshiping a crucified God, and they were making fun of us. Uh, anyway, Nero did a bunch of that stuff after he, after he burned a chunk of Rome, and then he had to find a scapegoat, and it became the Christian community. So Paul is arrested during this, this time, as is Peter. Um, by the way, I'm, I, I don't get any royalties from the movie Quo Vadis, but if you've seen the movie Quo Vadis, do you know what Quo Vadis means in Latin? What happens, it goes to an early Christian story that when the persecution hit Rome and Peter and Paul were both present, uh, the early Christian community said to Peter and Paul, uh, y'all need to get out. We depend on you. You, you. You're leading our early Christian movement, so go away while this crazy man Nero does what he's doing here in Rome. And uh, Quo Vadis, the legend Quo Vadis in this, the movie, Peter is on his way out of the city. And as he's on his way out of the city on the Appian Way, still, you can still do the Appian Way today, as he's on his way out of the city on the Appian Way, he meets Jesus walking in to Rome. And Jesus says, of course, first century Rome, so Jesus is speaking Latin. Jesus says to Peter, Quo Vadis, which is Latin for where are you going? And because uh, Peter was leaving town when the persecution broke. And at that point, Peter, and, and of course, Jesus is going into town to be with his people as they suffer. So when Jesus meets Peter going the opposite direction, uh, Jesus says, Quo Vadis, Peter. Um, and that's when Peter turns around and goes back into the city. But both Peter and Paul were, were, were killed during that persecution. Uh, that's why, by the way, um, Peter was killed on what, what we think to be the site of the Vatican. That's why he's buried underneath there. And there's some evidence there is a first century Galilean buried underneath St. Saint, Saint Peter's. Uh, Paul, if you go to Rome, there's a church uh, outside the wall. Uh, interestingly enough, it's called St. Paul Outside the Wall. Uh, you can go to that church, and that marks the spot where traditionally um, Paul was, was killed. Peter, um, Peter was crucified probably, as, as a Galilean. Uh, of course, Paul, when he dies, uh, y'all know how Paul was martyred, how he was killed? He was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen, uh, and that was the humane way to kill. So Roman citizens did not have to worry about, like, crucifixion or major torturous deaths um, like non-Roman citizens, like a Peter or an Andrew would have. So beheading is, is by the way, is... The French figured that out. The guillotine is merciful. It happens fast. So, uh, yeah, Paul was beheaded. So, Paul died during this period. So, Paul is in Rome. He is imprisoned. And we've talked about that, you know, modern prisons are much nicer uh, than ancient prisons. Uh, in the ancient world, they had no concept they needed to care for their prisoners. They just held you till they tried you, and either you were let go or killed, usually, or sent away as a slave. 
But yeah, they never saw prisons as places just house people, which is why if you were in prison, this is going to bear on the text. If you were in prison and you were fond of eating, your friends or family would have to bring that to you. Uh, that's why in this letter here, particularly at the end of the letter, you're going to hear Paul asking for Timothy, you know, Timothy, when you come, bring me certain things. Um, so Paul is in prison. If you go to Rome today uh, off the forum, which is um, the excavated, sort of restored ancient part of Rome, off the forum is still the Mamertine prison. Uh, and that's the traditional spot where Peter and Paul were, um, were housed. Um, and it, it fits in a lot of ways. It's on the periphery of downtown Rome. It's a little hard to find. That's going to bear on the text. Again, it was not much more than a hole in the ground where you would put prisoners. So the tradition is that was the prison that they kept Peter and Paul in until they died. By the way, there's another legend, but you can go see this. And I'm sure you'll take your typical modern skepticism with you when you see this. There's also a church in Rome. It has a chain up at the altar. And what it supposedly is, is two chains, one that was on Peter, one that was on Paul, that when they met, they joined and became one chain. Um, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's the tradition. They were in prison there. A lot of evidence they were in prison there. A lot of evidence they died there. So Paul is in prison. As is clear in Second Timothy, he knows he's going to die. And he does. He doesn't survive this imprisonment like he does the one at the end of Acts. He, he doesn't survive this imprisonment. So um, he's there in Mamertine prison. He's there in a bad, dungeon-like, hole-in-the-ground prison, and he has asked Timothy to come. Timothy is the young, young pastor in Ephesus, which is on the coast of present-day Turkey, uh, the western coast facing Rome and Greece. Uh, that's where Timothy, we know that from the book of Acts and elsewhere, uh, that's where Timothy was pastoring. Uh, a great, large city, thriving early thriving Christian community there in the major city of Ephesus and in, in what is present-day Turkey. The Romans called it Asia, or Asia Minor. That's where the word Asia comes from. Um, they called Turkey Asia. That was their province of the Roman Empire. Timothy was a, a very young person to, to be running, ruling, organizing, ordering the church in Ephesus. But here as Paul is in prison in Rome waiting to die, He's asked, he's asked, he's writing this letter to Timothy to encourage Timothy. We all think he wants Timothy to take his place after he's gone as the leader of the early Christian community. Uh, so he's encouraging Timothy to come see him, come find him in Rome. That's a substantial journey. If you're looking at the map, you got Turkey here, Greece here, and then Italy over here. It's a substantial journey. There was a Roman road, though. Uh, that would make that possible across the um, across Macedonia or ancient Greece. There was a Roman road, so they could travel fairly well in the ancient world. So he's he's trying to encourage Timothy, build Timothy up, and you go, and notice throughout the letter all the ways, some obvious, some not so obvious, that Paul is trying to build Timothy up and invite Timothy there. He does that right here in this text where he mentions these other people. Uh, he's already said, if your kind of mind goes back through first chapter, 
saying it to Timothy. He's already said, you, use, use your grandmother Lois, use your mother Eunice as examples, Timothy. The faith dwelt in them, use them. He's already made clear to Timothy. Uh, Paul is saying, use me, Timothy, as an example. Well, now he's going to name another great example. And sadly, um, well, I'm not sure everybody knows Eunice and Lois. They should. Uh, but sadly, this next example is almost lost to Christian tradition, unless you're Greek, Greek Orthodox, uh, Onesphorus. So you're going to be introduced to Onesphorus here. And I will commend to you, Onesphorus needs to be somebody well-known. Onesphorus can encourage us. I usually say Onesphorus, if you want to say Onesphorus uh, or whatever, um, Onesphorus is usually what I hear. You know, I don't run across any ancient Greeks who correct my pronunciation. But Onesphorus is someone that we should know. Um, and even though you may not know how much you're learning from Onesphorus, you, you learn a lot. You learn enough about Onesphorus here to let him be one of your... Um, one of your examples. So go back to the text. You are aware. He's, he's um, privileging Timothy here in verse 15. You are aware, Timothy. You know what I'm getting ready to tell you, Timothy. You are aware that all. Um, all here is probably what we call a Semitic exaggeration. Because um, obviously he says, you're aware that all who are in Asia... Well, it's not all who are in Asia, because there's millions of people in Asia, the vast majority who didn't even know who Paul was. But uh, evidently, Paul is saying about everybody that knew me in Asia, Asia Minor, Ephesus, present-day Turkey, almost everybody that knew me or almost everybody that I, I led to Christ, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. So let that sink in a little bit. Try to plug in. To, to Paul's feelings right here, Paul's emotions right here. Uh, by the way, I read an article just this last week, again, another article, about how loneliness is epidemic in our culture for a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons. Uh, as a culture, uh, we are one of the most lonely cultures uh, ever created. You know, all of our family's not around us. We're not all living on the homestead. Um, we don't have three generations under one roof. The list goes on and on and on. But there's a lot of reasons. But yeah, it's been noticed by a lot that our generation uh, is one of the lonelier generations. Um, I don't know if it ha well, it, everybody says it has something to do with it. You know, about a decade ago was the first time in American history that the majority of adults were single. And they still are single, you know, because of different reasons, married or never married or divorced, whatever. That, that probably has something to do with the increase of loneliness that everybody's writing about these days. So, by the way, church, we need to be doing something about that. And I think we are. I think we are. Uh, we're seeking out the people around us who, like Paul, need somebody right now. And Paul def definitely needs somebody. But feel the pain there. You are aware, Timothy, that all who are in Asia in your home city of Ephesus, perhaps, uh, Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Uh, we know absolutely nothing about Phygelus and Hermogenes. They're mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. Um, they're almost certainly Greek. Homogenes means uh, offspring of the god Hermes. So these are Greek names. We know that. 
uh, it's sort of sad to me that we know nothing about Phygelus and Hermogenes except they turned away from Paul. So, I, you know, I hope that's not the way we get remembered. I hope we get remembered for a lot of good things. But here's Phygelus and Hermogenes. By the way, don't give one of those names to your child. Um, those are not good names here. This is all we know about these two is he says, everybody in Asia Minor turned away from me, um, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. You know, maybe he expected more out of Phygelus and Hermogenes. Um, maybe they were the leaders who helped everybody turn away from Paul. Um, maybe they were the leaders who said, quit, quit listening to this, Paul. You know, he's, he's not even in Asia Minor anymore. He's way over there in Rome. He's been imprisoned. He's a criminal of the state. He's been arrested by the state. So quit listening to Paul. Uh, find your new and improved model of an apostle. Uh, we don't know, but obviously Phygelus and Hermogenes led the, um, led the exodus away from Paul. So here Paul is rather lonely in a Roman prison, and he says all, and I think he's exaggerating, but I think he's exaggerating so you understand his pain. Uh, all who are in Asia or Asia Minor or Turkey turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. But now he's going to give you the good example. He's, he's saying to Timothy, and does, don't be like Phygelus or Hermogenes. So now he's going to tell you to who, 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 who you need to emulate. Look at verse 16. And this is interesting. By the way, this is one place, and I'm sure I'll say something more in a moment, but this is one place that some people within the Christian community say that we find New Testament warrant for praying for the dead. Um, we know the Jews did that. We read that, and we read that in Second Maccabees. That was part of the uh, early. That was part of Judaism in, in early Christianity's day. Um, there's not a lot of evidence the early Christians did. I'll say a little more about praying for the dead because parts of the church do, parts don't. The majority of the church does, Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic. Uh, but when, when they look for scriptural warrant, New Testament warrant for praying for the dead, this text I'm getting ready to put in front of you is, is where they find it, they think. And if I hadn't just told you that, you'd probably never have imagined that this is the text that they can use uh, to help warrant prayers for the dead. Anyway, look at it and you'll see where they may find it. Look at verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesphorus. Notice he says, may the Lord grant mercy not to Onesphorus, but to the household of Onesphorus. Um, we've looked at that for 2,000 years and said, hmm, wonder what that means. He's not saying, may the Lord grant mercy to Onesphorus. He's talking about the house. And he does the same thing, by the way, in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. He references the household of Onesphorus. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesphorus. Now, what could be going on here, though? Uh, an argument from silence is always dubious, so be careful when you make arguments from silence. Because uh, he doesn't say to us why he's talking about the household of Onesphorus, but not Onesphorus. Uh, of course, that doesn't stop inquiring minds from talking about it. You know, so there's several options here. 
you are going to see Onesiphorus leaves Asia Minor and comes to Rome. So that's probably a hardship on Onesiphorus' family that are still in Asia Minor because Onesiphorus makes the journey to Rome. So that may be why he's just referencing the household of Onesiphorus. Maybe, and this is very much a possibility, when Onesiphorus came to Rome to hunt the criminal of the state, Paul, and found the criminal of the state, Paul, and tried to care for the criminal of the state by bringing him food or whatever Paul needed there in that prison, maybe Onesiphorus was arrested also. You know, think about it. That's, that's why all of the disciples of Jesus fled from the Garden of Gethsemane because they were, they were being rational. If they, if they arrest our leader, they, we may be the next ones they're coming after. That's why all the disciples fled from the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's, it's not a um, pipe dream that if they arrest your leader, they may want to come after you too, which is part of Paul's loneliness here. Uh, obviously, if he's in prison as a prisoner of the state, facing execution, you may not want to just pop up and say, hey, I'm right there with him. He's my leader. He's my teacher. He's my rabbi. Uh, because that could not end well for you. So maybe Onesiphorus uh, has been arrested when he comes to um, Rome, to hunt Paul. Um, third option is he may be dead. He may have been arrested and already executed. So he may be dead. Um, all of those would lead Paul to, to talk about the household of Onesiphorus. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. There's going to be a verse in just a moment that again maybe implies Onesiphorus is dead, but maybe not. You have to be careful about arguments from silence uh, because obviously there's part of what's going on here we don't know. We do know he's referencing the household of Onesiphorus. Um, when you get to heaven one day, you can ask Paul, why did you not want Onesiphorus to get mercy? Why were you not talking about grace for Onesiphorus? Um, why are you so enamored with his household? Uh, but any of those that I mentioned, options are there as far as why Paul seems focused here and in chapter 4 on the household. So may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. He could have been arrested, and who knows? They, the Romans may be going after the household now. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he, oh, by the way, the word Onesiphorus uh, in Greek means uh, something like the prophet bringer or the one who does me good. And evidently, uh, Onesiphorus lives up to his name because look what Paul says. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. He often refreshed me. Um, literally, the Greek for refresh, think about refresh. Literally, the Greek means he often helped me breathe easier. He often refreshed me. So evidently he did it while Paul was in prison in Rome, but that wasn't the only time he did it. So uh, Onesiphorus often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. That is the third time thus far in 2 Timothy. Paul has talked about not being ashamed because part of what he's trying to do to Timothy is say, Timothy, don't be ashamed of my chains. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be timid, Timothy. I want you to step up 
and take care of the task. So this is the third reference to not being ashamed, particularly not being ashamed of Paul's situation right now. So Onesiphorus, who often refreshed Paul, was not ashamed of his chains, which, by the way, just means not ashamed of his imprisonment. He went and tried to find Paul, found Paul there in prison in Rome. Um, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly or diligently, and he found me. Well, again, we say, hmm, why did he have to search diligently? Why did he have to search earnestly to find him? Uh, several reasons, perhaps. And again, you got to be a little careful with the arguments from silence when you try to fill in the silence. But it's kind of fun, and we've been doing it for a couple thousand years. Um, why did he have to search diligently? Well, I've already told you the city has been burned to a large extent, remember? Uh, so the city is in a little bit of chaos and confusion. A substantial, not all of it, but a substantial part of Rome was burned because of Nero's lunacy. So maybe, yeah, it's a little chaotic there in Rome following the great fire. Um, maybe Onesiphorus had just never been there before. This might be Onesiphorus' first time going to Rome. Or the prison's hard to find which even to this day, the prison's hard to find. I think I told you last week, if you, if you do go to Rome and your tour guide takes you to the Roman Forum and you're looking at all those wonderful sites in the Roman Forum, tell your tour guide you want to see the Mamertine prison. And your tour guide may say why. And you say, well, I happen to be a Christian and this Paul Peter stuff means a lot to me. I know, I know Caesar means a lot to you, but Paul Peter stuff means a lot to me. It, it is on the periphery. It is, you have to go through a building because it, it was and is literally a hole in the ground, but you, you still can go there. So it just may not be easy to find. So for whatever reason, Onesiphorus' household seems to be the, um, uh, the object of Paul's concern at this point. And he's mentioning that Onesiphorus did come to him and searched till he found him. Um, before I get to the interesting verse 18, let me just say this. Um, I think, and this is something I've said dozens of times over the course of my 30-some years of ministry, I, think we, I don't think we value enough the ministry of, uh, of encouragement in the body of Christ. Um, one of my heroes in the, in the book of Acts is Barnabas. I've actually formed Barnabas committees in some of my churches, because Barnabas was the nickname for that person, the book of Acts. That nickname Barnabas means son of encouragement. Um, so evidently Barnabas was such an encourager, he got the nickname son of encouragement. Uh, I think we devalue or don't value highly enough the ministry of encouragement. Um, I, I, I'm sure you're like me. There's a lot of things in life that takes away our courage. That's what it means to be discouraged, that which takes away our courage. There's a lot in life that takes away our courage. Some of the things that discourage us as individuals are only known to ourselves. There's a whole list of things that discourage me that only God, my wife, and my dog, Jaxie, know. Because I try not to use the pulpit to, um, to, to, to lather you with my discouragements. Because uh, some of them may be sitting at the table beside you right now. 
Just kidding. I, what I'm saying about discouragement is for the sake of those of you that go to other churches. But all of us get discouraged. And, you know, when, when God raises up those people in our lives who encourage us, that is such a valuable ministry. You know, who, whoever your Onesphorus is, those are such valuable ministries. And that's what you see Paul doing here. He is praising this one who encouraged him, who encouraged him to the extent of doing something about it, making the long journey from Asia Minor to Rome. Um, yeah, just a word of encouragement to encourage all of us to be encouragers. Sometimes we get fo so focused on what we're dealing with that we, we don't notice the people around us who need encouragement. But I, I think it's one of the premier ministries in the, in the life of the church. I had a member in my Franklin church. He was in his 90s. He was sort of homebound. He was one of our home friends. And one of the things he did uh, every day, I had a lady that did this in my Shelby church. Every day, um, she took the list of birthdays from the church, which not hard to get, took the list of birthdays from the church. Every day made a phone call to every one of those names. And just left, and it's not that many in those churches. It's not that many, but I know somebody in Rotary that does that, and some of you know them too. Because um, we put Rotary birthdays in our spokesman. He calls every birthday. And for most of us, because, you know, we're in this strange world where we don't answer our phone anymore, um, which is good and bad, but, you know, he usually leaves messages for everybody. And, uh, but I had a gentleman in Franklin did that. I had a lady in my Shelby church did that. And I'll never forget my children who were middle school and high school when I was in Shelby. Um, they came, you know, back in those days you had a, you know, um, voice message machine you had to hit and listen to and all that stuff. My kids would come on, hit that machine, and there she was wishing them happy birthday. And dad's like, they were like, dad, who, who is this? And I got to explain her to my kids. But, you know, they were, those people, including the one who does the rotary phone calls, are doing what they can do because they're a little homebound, a little, little shut-in, and they're doing what they can do. So don't, you know, the little things of encouragement are, are important. You know, I, I have a hard time ever throwing away the cards that I receive, cards and notes uh, that I receive from people. Um, I just I have a hard time throwing them away because I try to store them because I know there'll be a point I need to go back to them and look at them. So don't undervalue your ministry of encouragement. Um, and, and use Onesphorus as an example of um, audacious encouragement. You know, I, sending a card or a note or leaving a message is so important, but uh, don't let that stop you from doing the even more audacious things to encourage the people in your, your, your life, uh, like Onesphorus did for, um, for, for, for Paul. Um, you know, um, not, not in this church, not in this church, but maybe in some of the churches you're aware of, there are always people that the pastor or any leader in any organization, there's always people that you never hear from them unless what? Yeah, if they got a complaint, they know exactly where to, where to find you. But they, you, you know, there's people I know when they start heading my direction. And I want to say you have met your complaint quota for this year. Anyway, all of us are human. All of us benefit from encouragement. 
all of us remember the little acts of encouragement or the great acts of encouragement, such as what Onesiphorus is doing here. Anyway, back to uh, Onesiphorus and his household, back to the remark I made about how some people see this as a text that warrants prayers for the dead. Verse 17. You know, he, he came, he wasn't ashamed, he arrived in Rome, he searched for me. Verse 18, here's a wish prayer that Paul offers. May the Lord grant him mercy, grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Um, this is a wish prayer. Uh, one interesting thing here, the Greek literally says, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from Lord, no article on that day. So this may be a reference to Jesus and the Father. Again, sort of a Trinitarian reference here. Um, that's why Lord is repeated twice, but it may be repeated twice uh, because there's no article before the second one. It may be repeated twice because one is God the Son, one is God the Father. Uh, Jesus, Lord, Father, Lord. Uh, anyway, so may the Lord grant Anesphorus. Here he is talking about Anesphorus, not the household. May the Lord grant Anesphorus to find mercy from the Lord on that day. What day is he talking about? And Paul does this all the time. What is that day? The end. The second advent. The return of Christ. Judgment day. So you hear what he's saying? May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Um, if you've got Anesphorus dead which I've already pointed out, you don't necessarily have to have Onesiphorus dead. He could, he could be referencing the household for other reasons. But if you do have, I mean, Onesiphorus could be in prison. Onesiphorus could be dead. Onesiphorus is obviously absented from his household. So you don't have to have Onesiphorus dead. Uh, for those of you who had study Bibles, it'd be interesting to see what your study Bible says. See if your study Bible has him dead. But if you do have him dead, here's a wish prayer that Paul is making about Onesiphorus. You know, may the Lord grant this dead man to find mercy from the Lord on, on that day. Um, couple quick remarks since I've raised it. And I know um, I have Christians here of all traditions. So just to give you something to cogitate about. Um, the vast majority of the Christians in the world do offer prayers for the dead. Uh, but then you need to be careful to find what that means. Um, C.S. Lewis, one of my heroes, who is Anglican, we know that as Episcopalian here, and of course the Anglican uh, tradition is the mother church of Methodism. Uh, in the Anglican tradition, you're welcome to or not. Um, C.S. Lewis one time wrote in his letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, he said, yeah, I do kind of reference the dead and talk about the dead and my prayers. And he said, not because they need my prayer, but I need to pray for them. And what he meant by that is, you know, sometimes we Christians, particularly the more Protestant we become, when someone dies, they're gone. Well, we know that's not true. We know that's not true. We believe in the communion of the saints. We believe the fellowship that we share with each other is for eternity. There's not two communions of the saints, the one on earth and one in heaven. We believe in the communion of the saints. We are knit together in Christ for good. So you might as well get used to each other. We're knit together in Christ for good. So the fellowship that we share is not only for this world. We say that universally. We know that. Um, 
I've always been a little saddened. You know, in the Jewish tradition, you can light the light at the back of the synagogue on the anniversary of your loved one's death. Uh, in Orthodox and Roman Catholic tradition, you can reference the dead in your prayers. Uh, by the way, to show you our Anglican tradition, for those of you that may be um, Methodist, uh, in, one, in one of our liturgies for funerals, the prayer begins, and I always point this out because most Methodist goes over their head. The prayer begins, uh, eternal God, let your perpetual light shine on those who have died. I mean, that's sort of referencing that we're on their side, we love them. And that's why C.S. Lewis is saying, you know, our prayers don't do anything for the dead, but it does something for us. You know, I need to just wish my mother well. I need to wish my father well. Uh, I need to wish my stillborn child, Sarah, well. You know, it, it may not do anything for them. God's got them. God's taking care of them. But, you know, what I don't want to do, and what my, this is what C.S. Lewis is saying too, what my psychology says is I'm going to rebel against forgetting them. I'm not going to forget them. I'm not going to forget them. So, um, yeah, just, you know, some Protestants um, are, are like, Anemic, you know, they, they any mention of the dead, any mention of those who have died, even if you mention them in gratitude to God, mention them. Don't let them go. Mention them, because yeah, when you know, in the Protestant tradition, I used to feel kind of sad about. It seems like, I mean, we are doing better about celebrating All Saints Day now, but it seems like when I first entered the ministry, about the, all we all we could do was give a memorial for someone who died and. And, you know, keep those memorials coming. But I, we can do more than that, you know, because of what we believe about the communion of the saints, the, the eternal nature of our fellowship. Um, and that's why, by the way, John Wesley, that good evangelical preacher, he said, and sometimes what happens in the body of Christ is Roman Catholics, Orthodox, don't pray to Mary other than in this sense they ask Mary to pray for them just like I'm asked Phyllis to pray for me or Ginger to pray for me. Um, because it goes back to, again, the theology of the communion of the saints. You know, we are, the communion of the saints is one. The fellowship we have in Christ is one. Now, we, we are quick to ask living saints, Phyllis, Ginger, to pray for me. Why not ask saints on the other side? to pray for you. And that's really all the church anywhere around the world's doing. And John Wesley said it wasn't a bad idea. That's why, I mean, we need everybody we can get interceding for us. You know, I, it's not like those of you in this room are more real than those on the other side. Now, I think here in the West, we start pretending that you here in this room, on this side of eternity, you are more real than those on the other side. We know that's not Christian theology. They are more real on the other side. We're in the shadow lands here. We're the less real here. They're the more real there. So uh, you know, that's where that tradition kind of came into Christianity. You're not trying to undo, um, and this is my bias, you're not trying to undo their eternal state. You're not, you're not, your prayers doesn't do anything for them because they don't need you that much anymore. God's got that. But don't just forget the people 
who have gone on ahead. You're going to be back with them one day. We believe in the communion of the saints. And if you don't know what that is, that's the Apostles' Creed, that some of us recite creeds every Sunday. Um, you know, one of these days for our retire, I'm going to stop a congregation right in the middle of a creed and say, do you really believe that? Do you believe in the resurrection of the body? Do you believe in the communion of the saints? Or you just believe in a communion here and now in this world? But death somehow eradicates the communion. Uh, anyway, I don't know that this is a text that would warrant you praying for the dead, depending on what you mean by praying for the dead. But, um, you know, one thing we do know as Christians is that the veil between this world and the world to come is very thin. Very thin. The old Celtic Christians used to talk about thin places. You know, the veil in general between this world and the world to come is very thin. But there are certain thin places where it gets thinner. Hopefully, Holy Communion is that for us. Hopefully, when I watched my children be born, that was a thin place. When I've watched saints die and go to the other side, my wife gets to do that more than I do now. When we watch saints, we've talked about this a lot. When we've watched saints go to the other side, that feels like a thin place. So yeah, the veil between this world and the world becomes very thin. So Paul, if, if Onesiphorus is dead, Paul's not letting him go. Paul is still willing to say, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on judgment day. And he may be alive, he may be in prison, he may be dead. And you well know, back to Timothy, you well know, Timothy, all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So evidently, Timothy knows all the good stuff Onesiphorus did at Ephesus. And again, the direct reason for this letter is Paul is trying to encourage Timothy. He's saying, remember Onesiphorus. You know all the good he did in Asia Minor, which is the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. So, um, an amazing text.